Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me for another Pain Talk podcast. Today, we're going to dig into the third, fourth, and fifth force that can drive persistent pain. So I just want to remind uh, listeners of the first and second force. The first was neuroinflammation, which is that glial cell dysregulation. So we often refer to that as a gliopathy, not a neuropathy. So this is where these glial cells, which normally kind of do that cleanup in IL-1, so they really try to maintain that homeostasis, they actually start to get dysregulated, and they can actually drive these very powerful pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines that can actually drive neuroinflammation. It is this neuroinflammation that drives that second force, which is central sensitization, or that amplification within the pain system, or that synaptic uh, plasticity. So this is where we start to see the changes that happen at the, at the terminals, or that communication hub between the neuron cells. So neuroinflammation, which is driven by glial cell dysregulation, which contributes to central sensitization or, or amplification within that pain system. So the third, fourth, and fifth forces are, include the messenger, which is where we start to see a change in these uh, two circuits that become really important when we look at pain communication. So we have these higher learning circuits, which are brain-based, and then we have these peripheral uh, circuits, which are nociceptive-based. And so you can actually divide these two into these higher learning circuits and these nociceptive circuits. The fourth uh, force that can drive persistent pain is what we call brain or pain memory. And it sort of ties into that messenger a bit too, but we'll dig deep into that. And I think what is really important is what we call the pain protective behaviors. And this is where we start to see some changes in patients' uh, movement. Uh, We start to see uh, issues around muscle work. Uh, So the muscles are trying to keep the body in that painful area stable. And uh, so those things become really important. And we will dive into some of these as we go along here. So the messenger, uh, so who is in control uh, when we look at uh, uh, the normal circuitry around pain? So we've got that higher learning circuit, and we've got that nociceptive circuit. So who is in control? And typically with chronic pain or persistent pain, we start to see this shift from these nociceptive circuits to these higher learning circuits. And in fact, there are some persistent pain syndromes like fibromyalgia where there is very little input from the nociceptive circuit. This is all higher learning circuit. So it requires a a shift in our focus from the management of pain from a uh, nociceptive uh, process to more of a central process or the central nervous system. So that shift becomes really important. So just reminding ourselves that that normal kind of input that should happen within the tissue. So pain enters through these peripheral nociceptors to that dorsal root ganglia that is outside the spinal cord. Then it goes into the spinal cord and goes up through this ascending pathway. Normally, the brain interprets that messaging. How big is the threat? What is the appropriate response? And then what happens is there's some modification that happens. And then there's a response that happens through that descending inhibition pathway. So that's the uh, normal sort of pathway that we see. So the process of acute pain transitioning to chronic pain is called pain chronification. So when we start to see this shift uh, from the peripheral nociceptive pathways to those central pathways, this is what pain chronification is. 
Um, so when it happens, as we mentioned, is that the uh, peripheral neural anatomy becomes less important and central mechanisms such as central sensitization, neuroinflammation, and psychological factors such as fear, anxiety, pain avoidance gradually take over, necessitating a shift in that management from the, the peripheral uh, nervous system to that central nervous system. So some of the messengers in that higher learning center, it can, it's a very complex area. So when you look at things like the limbic system, which really makes up six different structures, including the amygdala. So the amygdala is very important around that stress response or survival response, that fight, flight, or freeze. Uh, you've got the ba basal ganglia. You've got the uh, cingulate gyrus. You've got the hippocampus, the hypothalamus, and the thalamus. So the complex emotions that we see around pain uh, usually involve the thalamus and the limbic system. The alterations in our sleep pattern can be the reticular activating system and the hypothalamus. That stress or survival response that we mentioned includes the hypothalamus and the amygdala. And so these, these very complex centers that come together, pulling in memory, pulling in experience to kind of make an interpretation about what uh, the perceived threat or uh, what kind of uh, response we need around survival and protection. So this starts to really drive some of the pain that patients are experiencing. So the limbic system itself is a very primitive system. It's actually one of the oldest systems that we have in our brain. Uh, it sits on top of our brainstem. Uh, it has two major functions, which is really to keep you alive as well as to seek pleasure. So it really is a very complex area. So other experiences, not just pain, can trigger the limbic system. So when we think of fear, when we think of anxiety, so the brain itself can't really tell the difference between physical pain and emotional pain because from the brain's perspective, the mechanism or the chemistry that we're making is very similar. So experiences like pain, shortness of breath, uncertainty, unpredictability can actually start to drive pain. So it can get to be a very mishmash of, of emotion. The other thing that the, the limbic system can do, uh, another function that's very important for human survival is to seek pleasure. So this is the reproductive measure of, of our, our brain. The most cognitive, uh, rational, mindful part of our brain is the prefrontal cortex. And ideally, what you want to do in patients who are living with persistent pain, they are in constantly in survival mode. It is a, um, a state of being that can be very chaotic. And getting them to that cognitive, rational piece, the fastest way to get them there is through the breath. But that takes a lot of practice. So you want to get them out of survival mode into that place of calm, which is in can be found in the prefrontal cortex. So obviously there's other things that are going to come into that. It's a very complex process, but it's important to understand that what is driving some of the, the behaviors, uh, survival behaviors and protective behaviors that we see with patients, especially when they start to disconnect, they stop moving, are really a, a way of them finding calm in a predictable way. Uh, which in the end actually starts to create more chaos. Because if we look at a primitive model of um, how our brain is functioning, when we become more disconnected, when we become less functional, from the brain's perspective, we're getting left behind. And f that means that you're at risk of getting eaten by a predator or, you know, just uh, the brain gets more and more agitated when we're not moving or doing things. So changing that messenger, there's often a number of things that we can start to help patients with. The breathing is probably the most powerful tool but it is one of the hardest tools to get patients to engage with because it does require a real shift. It's, it's a very difficult skill, I find, to learn when we're feeling a, a sense of, uh, of tension and chaos in our body. 
but it is a very, very uh, important skill. Uh, it also helps to bring that person to that mindful, calm place. Other factors that can be important is, is getting patients off that acute pain treadmill to that chronic pain. So shifting from that acute pain model to that uh, persistent pain model. So shifting how they think about their pain, how they're going to try and get more active, how we can control these flare-ups, which are really important because the more they're flaring up, the more out of control pain becomes and the more disconnected, less mobile they become. So oftentimes we have to pull in from other disciplines uh, to tailor to the needs of that patient, whether it's a physical therapy, so pacing, uh, there can be psychotherapeutic options, cognitive behavioral therapy. There are also some kinds of uh, pharmacotherapy that may be helpful too. So tricyclic antidepressants, some anticonvulsants, they all tend to work in the central nervous system, although they can lead to mental fog. It can be very distressing for patients sometimes when they learn that we're prescribing antidepressants. But if they understand the neurobiology that is happening within the nervous system, then they can start to understand why this particular type of pharmacology can be beneficial. The goal of medication, though, is only to get a 30% reduction in their pain because you want to avoid sedation and improve function. You also need to bring in non-pharmacological therapies as well in terms of cognitive behavioral therapy, activity pacing. There can be some alternative therapies like Qigong or Tai Chi. Oftentimes, even just sitting in a chair with some very light movement of your arms helps the brain to feel that we're actually moving. So we know that all these therapies can be important, but they're very expensive and they're also very difficult to access, especially if you're in a rural community. Now, thank goodness for the internet, there are more and more resources that we're finding online, so we want to hook patients up to those resources. So changing the messenger requires a change in our approach, uh, focusing more on those mechanisms that are central, not peripheral, um, there's other therapies that become really important that we take for granted, like some kind of routine or structure to your day. So the brain likes predictability. It likes to know that you're getting up at the same time every day. It likes to know that you're going to bed at the same time every day. Many of these skills uh, can be taught in a pain self-management format. And here's where we bring in all the different aspects that are required around pain control. It's very similar to what we see with the diabetic clinic or the hearts in motion clinic. So it's looking at all aspects of the chronic condition that are impacted by the patient's day-to-day -day life, whether it's medications, whether it's diet, whether it's movement, dealing with uh, stress and tension, improving uh, sleep, you know, helping to shift focus, uh, looking at how we can re help them reconnect to the people and things that matter in their life. All those things become really important, and they are taught in a pain self-management program. When we talk about uh, pain protective behaviors, I personally feel that this is very important. And it is something that we can address in the clinical situation, in the clinical setting. What happens when our body experiences pain, our brain wants us to feel, pay attention to it. It doesn't matter if it's acute. It doesn't matter if it's chronic. So what our body will do is it actually will protect us. So a couple of ways that happens is through the muscles. So the muscles start to get tight. And sometimes they can go into spasm. Or sometimes your patient will describe a pain experience where the intensity of that pain is so significant and so severe that sometimes their muscles feel like they want to give out on them. I call that the pain, that the, the, the play dead mode. This is where they want their legs feel like they're going to give out and the patient just wants to go to the ground. It's important, obviously, to make sure that there's nothing else going on in that patient's tissue. But generally, that can be a response uh, reflected in the experience of pain that the patient is having. 
The other thing that starts to happen is that the patient gets into a pain protective stance. So this is where they start to come forward a little bit. Uh, they, they bend at the hips, they bend at the knee. Just that maneuver alone, their tissue starts to carry an extra 42 pounds or 45 pounds of weight. So if this is acute pain, then often the patient can get upright. Um, but with chronic pain, the patient will often stay in these positions, not even know that they're doing it. It's like walking. You don't think about walking. You just do it. And what that starts to do is put lots of stress on their hips, their lower back, their shoulders, and their knees. And it just seems to be predictable for me that when I see patients in the pain clinic, those that have had chronic pain for uh, and low back pain in particular, almost always end up getting some knee pain and hip pain. And most of that can be related to how their body is getting into that protective stance. So using walkers and canes early on in their recovery can be very important. Uh, I love some of these walkers where the patient is actually completely upright. Their, their arms are resting on the uh, arm boards. Now, there can be some issues around that, and it's important that they're fitted for that properly with a physiotherapist. And obviously, it can be a, a bit of a challenge in someone who has a spinal stenosis. But getting that patient upright making them feel safe and supported when they're upright can help to minimize how pain protective behaviors can impact their pain. The other thing that can be a helpful clue uh, around pain protective behavior is that if I'm upright, if my chest is open, my shoulders are back, my thumbs are going to point out. But as soon as I start to come forward, those thumbs point in. So it's a good visual cue that I cannot take credit for. It was It's actually from a physiotherapist that I work with, Lee, who... Um, reminded me of how important that uh, visual cue can be for patients. So I do use that cue. I think it's a very helpful skill that she, uh, she, she has shared with me. So I think that's it. So we're looking at the other piece, I guess, to add in there would be the pain or brain memory. And this is where our brain will hang on to every physical, emotional, and spiritual uh, experience that we've had that is painful. It wants to hang on to those experiences because it wants to be able to protect us from them. Where we'll see this in the chronic pain population is that they may be standing up uh, and wanting to pick up something off the floor, but the mere thought of picking up that piece of paper or that book will actually elicit pain before they even do it. We'll also, this is also the basis of post-traumatic stress disorder, so where you might see it in somebody who's experienced uh, you know, trauma in the military is that they can be walking down the street, minding their own business, and someone shuts the door of a car. And that noise alone will actually cause them to hit the ground. So the brain is saying, get down. So these, these brain or pain memory uh, behaviors are things important to help the patient point out. And when you do have those discussions, they actually can agree that there are certain things where they will avoid, you know, uh, leaning into those particular activities. Now, after saying that, though, is we don't want to push patients into these behaviors uh, whether it's, you know, in terms of uh, reaching something off the floor, if it doesn't feel safe. Any activity that the patient does needs to feel safe in a predictable way, and it needs to be something that's done with, with considerable care, because the need to protect will outweigh the activity tenfold. All right, so we're going to stop there just very quickly. Uh, the, the third, fourth, and fifth forces that contribute to chronic pain include the messenger, uh, the brain and pain memory, and the pain protective behaviors. And also, these are included with neuroinflammation. So the factors that drive persistent pain include neuroinflammation, which is glial cell dysregulation, central sensitization, which is that pain amplification, the messenger, the, the uh, learning center, the, the drivers of pain, 
uh, shift from that higher learning circuit to that nociceptive regulation circuit. Uh, there's also pain or brain memory, and there's also those pain protective behaviors. So we'll stop there, and hopefully that will uh, give you uh, some information to think about and hopefully to have some conversations uh, amongst yourselves. And make sure that you're leaving some any opinions, any comments uh, on our webpage. You can find us on paintalk.ca. We're also on Google Live. I'll put that link on the webpage. And we're working to get on Spotify, so hopefully that will come soon. Um, and we'll just stop there. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.